Our sermon this morning is entitled Christian Living Part 3, and we continue in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning looking at verses 26 and 27. If you recall in this uh, short (coughs) passage in chapter uh, 4, at the end of the chapter we've been looking uh, very carefully at several of these uh, verses, and uh, our keywords this morning are sin, anger, and righteousness for our worshipers in training. I wonder what makes you angry. What things happen in your life, or maybe things that you hear, things that you experience, that make you angry? Every one of us gets angry. None of us are immune from that. Without exception, all of us experience anger in our lives. Some of us are more honest about it, Some of us express it in more prominent ways, but anger is part of the human experience in this world. We cannot escape it. We've all been on the receiving side of anger, not just on the feeling side of it. As children, our our parents sometimes have responded to us and to our childlike ways with anger. As employees... We sometimes express anger at decisions that are made by our bosses. As consumers, we're angry sometimes at workers or waiters and waitresses. We may be angry at things that we watch on the news or we see something happen in public. Anger exists in our hearts. And while we may not be angry at all of the same things, it's there. It's something we have to deal with. As men and women and children, we have to deal with anger. So what do we think about it? How do we deal with it? What place does anger have in the life of a Christian? And in our short passage this morning, Paul deals with those very questions. And the way Paul deals with it may be a bit surprising to some of us. But first we need to be reminded of the context We need to very briefly see, again, that verses 25 through 32 are built upon verses 17 through 24. I don't think we can be reminded of this enough. We cannot stress enough the reality that what Paul is writing in these verses, what the Bible is commanding of us here this morning, is only possible when what is written in verses 17 through 24 have been manifest in our lives. For example, last time we looked at verse 25 about putting away falsehood, not lying. And we said the only way that's possible, the only way we can put away falsehood is to first put off the old self, to put the old self to death that the new self might live. Because the old self was only able to live in falsehood. And that self must die and the new self must live that we can put it all away. And the only way that can happen is through the transforming, renewing, regenerating, life-giving power of God. In other words, quite simply, if a person is not a new creation in Christ, there is no ability on their part to walk in obedience to God's word to put off falsehood. Their very nature is opposed to this command. 
So before we come to each of these verses, we need to continually be reminded of the gospel. I need Christ to have fulfilled the law perfectly on my behalf. I need Christ to have died in my place because I haven't fulfilled the law perfectly. I need Christ to be raised from the dead so that I might have new life. And when I get that He did that for me, and when the Holy Spirit changes my heart of stone to a heart of flesh, and I am now in Christ, everything about me changes. And now, instead of looking at what God commands, I don't simply say, that's impossible, but I say, on my own, that's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And I am God's, and He is mine, therefore I am able to walk in obedience. I want to walk in obedience. I want to do so with great joy. And when I don't, I will repent, I will ask God to sanctify me all the more, that I might be faithful to Him and conformed to the image of Christ. So I hope you'll seek to apply this as we think through these verses, because otherwise, verses 25 through 32 are impossible. We see here how the law and the gospel are working together, don't we? Here's how. I read read verse 25, for example. Having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. And how shall I respond to it as it stands alone? If I'm honest, I say, I can't do that. I might want to do that, but if I want to be rescued from the penalty of death for not doing that, I need someone who has done that to stand in my place. I need a redeemer. I need a rescue. So then I'm brought low. I'm I'm plowed under. I'm brought to the end of myself that I can now say Christ has put away all falsehood. There was never an untrue word spoken from his mouth. There was never a deceptive intention in his heart. There was never a failure to perfectly fulfill what God had commanded. God has made a way that Christ's obedience now can count as my obedience. I can be made able to put away falsehood in my own life because by God's grace, through faith in Christ, all that he has accomplished is credited to me. And so I need Christ. I must believe on Christ. I must repent of falsehood in my life. So you see, the law, put away all falsehood, led me to the gospel because I couldn't do it, but Christ did. So now what? Now I look back to the law and I say, now that I am in Christ, I have a desire to fulfill God's will. I want to live according to God's will. I want to be obedient to the law that I once despised, but now I love it, I delight in it, and God has given me the ability to do so. As a new creation, I am no longer obligated to sin, and so I will look to God's law by faith and put away all falsehood. It won't happen perfectly in this life yet because I still live in the flesh. But as God continues to conform me more and more into the image of Christ, I am more and more able to put away falsehood. I am able to repent when I don't do so. So I hope you see the formula. The law brings us to the gospel, which points us back to the law. It's critical. We have to apply that every time we see imperatives in the Scripture. When we see the commands of the Bible, we need to be thinking in that way. Otherwise, we are left powerless. We become legalists. We become moralists. We think we can actually obey without the gospel, but that's impossible. 
So keep that in mind every time you come to a command in the Bible. And this morning we're going to look at the specific command given in verses 26 and 27 of Ephesians 4. Paul is continuing to identify what our lives look like as children of God, as new creations in Christ, having put off the old self and putting on the new self. What does that look like as it's manifest in our lives? And this morning we're going to deal specifically with anger. The text in the blue ESV Bibles, if you're following along there, is on page 978. So let's read together Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now these words from Scripture should be a little bit shocking to a Christian's ears. As you read through the Bible, there are numerous examples of sins committed as a result of anger. Revenge, murder, deception, harsh words, you name it. When it comes to anger, it is all there. God shows us examples in the lives of his people to warn us of the dangers posed by anger in our lives. Proverbs 29, 22 tells us, A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. And yet, here we have, be angry as an imperative. Notice, Paul's not writing a lot of nuanced language here. He doesn't give us a lot of words. He doesn't say, you know, sometimes you'll get angry. It's unavoidable. Sometimes it might be okay, so make the best of it. No, he gives, he gives a very direct and a shocking command from the Lord. Be angry. So we need to consider what that looks like. Our first point this morning from verse 26 is that righteous anger is pleasing to God. Paul is telling us that not only is it sometimes appropriate to be angry, it is actually our duty to be angry in certain circumstances. And to be righteously angry is pleasing to God. But of course, there's a great big question over the entire issue because we can't just use this to give ourselves a pass to be angry at anything and everything we want, which is why I'm very specific in calling it righteous anger. What is righteous anger? Righteous anger is being angry when God doesn't get what he has revealed, what he wants in his word, and his will is violated. And to put a check on our hearts, the anger that we have must be motivated by a sincere love for God. In other words, if you love God and you become angry because you recognize that our holy God has been offended by someone's behavior, to include your own, that anger may very well be righteous. It is anger that arises from, from being offended that God's revealed will has been violated. We can say it another way. I should be angry at the things God is angry with. And when I am, it pleases him. The 19th century preacher Henry Ward Beecher wrote, A man that does not know how to be angry does not know how to be good. 
A man that does not know how to be shaken to his heart's core with indignation over things evil is either a fungus or a wicked man. Are you angry at the things God is angry at because he is angry at them? Some people want to assume it's, it's just wrong for Christians to be angry in any situation, but that's obviously not what Paul is saying here. There's a prevailing notion, particularly in our culture, that Christians are supposed to be always nice pushovers who don't ever challenge anyone or anything, but simply lay down as floor mats to be walked on, but the Bible will have none of it. In Paul's day, there were two main ideas in uh, the Greek philosophy that he would have been responding to regularly. You've probably heard of both groups. One is the Stoics, and the other is the Epicureans. The Stoics were the people who have sort of gotten the, we've gotten the idea from of having a stiff upper lip. They were, they were just that. They were Stoic. They tried in every case, in every situation, to be unmoved by circumstances. So they believed that anger was a terrible thing. It must be controlled. It must be destroyed before you are destroyed by it. You should never express it in any way. Now, the Epicureans were the opposite of the Stoics, and all that they wanted was pleasure. They were hedonists. But interestingly... They also believed anger was terrible, but their reasoning was very different. The Epicureans taught that a person should just be above anger. If you're angry, you just need to move away from whatever it is that is eliciting that response from you. So if you get angry because of something, get to something comfortable and leave it behind. If your boss makes you angry, quit your job. If a person makes you angry, have nothing to do with them. If your wife makes you angry, divorce her. So the result is, if you're angry, you're foolish because you're staying in the conditions that you don't have to stay in. So get away so you're no longer angry. Well, I think our culture has, for the most part, adopted a lot of Epicurean ideals. It's about pleasure. It's about feeling good. It's about doing what we want and assuming that that thing, whatever it is, will make us happy if, if we can just be away from it and live in the world we want to, free of anger. In fact, today, the only anger that seems to be acceptable for many is being angry at anyone or any idea that comes from a Christian worldview. So we're told that we shouldn't be angry about rampant moral degradation. We shouldn't be angry about the moral revolution of our civilization, And those who are assumed to be enlightened by all of the progressive ideals of the 21st century should be angry at us for insisting on biblical morality and ethics. So colleges and universities have students who protest and even riot when biblically-minded speakers are invited on their campus to give a lecture. And they're provided a safe space where they can flee away from all the words they find offensive and don't want to have enter their not-so-free-thinking minds. It would be terrible to have a free exchange of ideas on a university campus. But when Christians express anger over women wanting to marry women, or when men are given permission to use a men's bathroom, a woman's bathroom or a locker room, when, when tax-supported organizations dismember babies in the womb and sell their body parts for a profit, we are called hypocrites and bigots. Why? Well, in large part, because Christians 
have bought and propagated the lie that we should never, under any circumstances, be angry about anything. We shouldn't be surprised, then, at the world's response. Unbelievers are going to act like unbelievers. That shouldn't surprise anybody. But we need to respond to the world Christianly, and at times that means we should be angry. Paul rejects the ideas of both the Stoics and the Epicureans, and he rejects the idea of 21st century progressives because they're simply not what God commands of us. Anger, when properly employed, is a good thing. Jesus himself was angry often. And yet, the Bible is very clear that Jesus never sinned. God gets angry. In fact, it tells us that God is constantly angry. Romans 1.18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And that text is written in what, uh, what we call grammatically a present progressive tense. And what that means is that it is always moving forward. It is always present. It is always going on. So in other words, God is always angry. Psalm 711 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. When's the last time you heard God described as one who feels indignation every day? But if anger were inherently wrong in and of itself, we wouldn't see it in God. We would not see it play out in the actions of Jesus. <coughs> but anger is actually put into us by God because we're created in his image. It is our capacity to be awakened by evil, to be moved to action as a result. Let me give you an example. Look with me in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. Mark, chapter 3. We see an example of Jesus. Mark 3, verses 1 through 6. Mark writes, Again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they, the Pharisees, watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. Here we go, verse 5. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. Now, what's going on here? Well, the text tells us very clearly in verse 5 that Jesus was angry. So what did he do? What was he angry about, and what did it move him to do? He was angry because of false teaching about the law of God as it related to the Sabbath. The Pharisees were putting this heavy, ungodly burden on the backs of the people regarding the Sabbath, and they were unwilling, as a result, to even show mercy to someone on the Sabbath, someone who was suffering. They had taken the law of God, which was given for our benefit. It was given for our good. I mean, God is commanding us to rest. 
to worship and to rest. That doesn't sound all that awful, does it? But they were taking that wonderful gift of God's law that is a blessing and a benefit to us and twisting it into an instrument of fear and self-righteousness. So Jesus responds with anger against their evil. And he does so by doing the very thing that he knew would arouse unrighteous anger within them right in front of their faces. There was a gross injustice here. So Jesus responds in a very powerful way. Listen, Jesus healed that man to show mercy. That's part of this. But Jesus healed the man also out of an angry response. He's angry as a result of the fall of mankind, which led to the man suffering with a withered hand in the first place. But he's angry at the sin of the Pharisees. So he responds with action. So if your response to every situation and every evil is to not get angry, you're actually a lot less like Jesus than you might assume you're being. There are times and situations where anger is appropriate. God-honoring responses are sometimes angry responses, so it's your duty. And in fact, if you don't get angry about the things God gets angry about, you need to have your heart checked. You need your mind renewed so that you will see the world as God sees the world, so that you will hate injustice, so you will hate rampant immorality, you will hate sin, you will hate all the effects of the fall. Listen, these things are destroying people's lives. Apart from Christ, these things were destroying your life. And so often we don't even realize it. You should hate that. You should be angry about that. Instead of throwing up our hands and saying, I just let people do what they want, however they want, I'm not going to get involved, you should be angry and say, it is my loving duty to be aroused by anger to do something about it. Say something about it. And we remember all along yet that God is strong, but he's never harsh. God is terrifying when it comes to his dealings with traitors, but it's never a response in pettiness or ego. He is perfect in his anger, and he calls us to the same thing. And with his help, we can be righteously anger, angry. However, we could run away with this very quickly in the wrong direction. So Paul is very clear in our second point this morning. Unrighteous anger is sinful and must be put to death. The Bible is so masterful, so often, giving us direction without giving us freedom to run away with that freedom to our own demise. The Lord is kind. He gives us some guardrails here. Because otherwise, we'd call everything righteous anger, we'd justify a whole lot of sin by citing Ephesians 4.26. But in the very same verse, we see that we're not just dealing with righteous anger in our lives, but we're also dealing with unrighteous anger. <coughs> Remember, we said righteous anger is anger that arises out of a love for God and is anger toward those things that God is likewise angry at and about. So unrighteous anger then is anger that is a result of not having your personal desires met, your own will fulfilled. 
For example, if, if we are angry because someone prevents us from getting what we want or doesn't tell us what we want to hear or opts for the truth instead, perhaps, our angry is unrighteous. It is sinful. And humans are terribly complex when it comes to sin, so we have the difficult realization to deal with that we can have both righteous and sinful anger in our hearts at the same time. And we have to constantly be asking ourselves some important questions. Always we need to ask ourselves, what are my motives? What's going on in my heart? Why am I thinking the way I'm thinking? Why do I feel the way that I feel? So when Paul says, be angry and do not sin, what he is implying is there is an anger that is sinful. There is a motivation behind anger that can be sinful. We've all experienced sinful anger. It's aroused in our sinful hearts to defend our egos, to defend our pride, to defend our reputations, to defend our agendas. We, we release it to attack not problems, not evil, not sin, not injustice, but people. Anger, both righteous and sinful. Anger is always our response in defense of something. Think about that. When I get angry... It's because I'm defending something. So we have to ask ourselves the question. I hope you do this. A very practical question to ask yourself every time you sense there's anger in your heart. What am I defending? Is it my pride? Is it my ego? Or is it God's glory? Is it God's law? So let me give us an example. What happens when our children lie to us? Notice I said when and not if. It's going to happen. So how do we respond to that? Should there be righteous anger for the sin of lying when our children break the ninth commandment? Yes. God hates lying and we should hate it too. We should have a righteous anger for that sin. But remember the question when you get angry about your child lying to you. What am I defending? Is it God's truth? Is it God's law? Is it my child's heart and my desire for them to walk in righteousness and holiness toward God? Or is it me defending me because how dare my child lie to me? All I do for them, all the ways I serve them, all the sacrifices I make for them, how dare they lie to me? We've been over this a hundred times. What is their problem? You see, we can walk a razor's edge with anger. If you blow up, that means you're being selfish. You're releasing your anger towards your child or another person. When you're unrighteously angry, you're tearing up people instead of problems. You're tearing up people instead of sin or evil or injustice. If you clam up, instead of tearing up people, you keep the anger inside and then you just tear up your insides. Instead, what I should do is I should sit down and I say, what am I defending right now? It's my pride. Well, then what do I need to do? I need to repent. I need to be angry at the sin of my children. God is, and I should be too. But I need to do it without sinning. 
That's a very, very fine line. And the way I respond is going to be very telling as to which side of the line I am on. I've had a few times where I've just responded in sinful anger with a loud voice or a quick punishment because whatever was going on just wasn't on my agenda for the day or it took a blow at my pride. There have been other times when I've thought about my children's sin and what it has done and how it could play out if left unchecked and it has me disciplining them through tears and heartbreak because of their sin. What's the motivation? That's the question. And we need to pray that our response is consistent with the desire to see unrighteousness put to death, and that includes our own unrighteous anger. In the book of James, he uses the word wars and fighting to describe the outward manifestations of the anger of the Christian, uh, Christians to whom he was writing. In James chapter 4, the question he asks cuts right through their sinful anger and focuses on the motivation. In, in James 4, 1, he writes, What causes quarrels? Or the King James says war. What causes war and what causes fights among you? And then he answers his own question, showing us exactly what is at the heart of anger in disputes. He says, Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? And of course, the intended reply is yes. We have angry conflicts with one another because our pleasures have become so intense that they're at war within us. So when you don't respond to me or a situation in the way I want you to, if there's unrighteous anger, it's going to be at war within me. Because my demands aren't being met, and I'm going to take it out on you. Check your heart. Check your motives. Check your passions that are causing war. What is the reason for my anger? What am I defending? Well, lastly, the reason our motives are so important is because unrighteous anger provides opportunity for the devil to tempt us to sin. We see that in verse 27, a warning. At the end of verse 26, he says, Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So Paul gives us two things here that we need to consider in terms of dealing with our anger once it is aroused within us. The first is a proverbial saying. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. The first century Greek historian Plutarch wrote that if ever the Pythagoreans were led by anger into retaliation and war, they were never to let the sun go down before they joined hands, embraced one another, and were reconciled. There are other ancient texts. They use similar kinds of language. So it's very likely that Paul here is using a very common saying among the Greeks. Sunset was regarded as a marker which activities of all kinds were to be concluded. And and here that includes our anger. The reality of anger for all of us is that purely righteous anger is actually a very rare thing. Why? Because as people living in a fallen world, in fallen flesh, even our holiest emotions, even our greatest words are spoiled by sin. So the admonition here is one of great wisdom for the good of our souls. Paul is telling us, don't lay on your bed and brood. 
Stuart Olliott wrote, Righteous anger, like the manna from heaven, breeds worms if it's kept overnight. There are too many worms to count. Bitterness, revenge, malice, spite, an unforgiving spirit, sharpness, grudges, hostility, irritability. The list could go on and on. It's a great picture. You think the manna that fell from heaven, if they did not consume it and they tried to hold it overnight, it rotted with worms. And he says anger is the same thing if held overnight. As Christians, we want to be able to wake up each and every morning without bitterness, without continued anger in our hearts from the day before. And even righteous anger, when nursed and stirred in our hearts, can very easily turn into something ugly, something that consumes us, something that gives rise to a situation which the devil is happy to exploit. If we don't put anger to bed... Before we put ourselves to bed, unchristlikeness, unbrotherliness will take up residence in our hearts. So we need to deal with anger promptly. If it's with another person, we need to seek reconciliation immediately. If it's a situation that we can do something to affect change, we need to affect that change. If it's an injustice with which you have no control over whatsoever, we need to be settled in our hearts that we've left the concern with God who makes all things right in the end. I need not seek justice with an eye toward vengeance. So I'm able to leave it with God and allow it to be something that He has promised in His Word He will make right in the end instead of letting it be something that leads me to sin. And the second thing Paul gets at when he's showing us how to deal with anger is that we need to be angry in such a way and deal with anger's potential results in such a way that we give no opportunity to the devil. There's a reason that Jesus taught us to pray by saying, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, or uh, can be said the evil one. We need to be kept from temptation. And when we are tempted, we need to be kept from sin. Temptation in and of itself is not sin. Even our Lord Jesus was tempted by Satan himself. However, if we do not want to allow the devil to gain a foothold in our lives, we must be absolutely sure that we're not giving in to our temptations. We must not lose self-control. When we lose our temper... When our anger turns sinful, we throw the doors wide open to Satan. We've all probably been irritably and irrationally angry about something. What happens in those times? You're no longer able to reason. You can't think straight. You don't have balanced judgment. You're completely biased in your decisions. Nothing you're saying makes sense to anybody else. And of course, this is a situation that the devil loves. There are few things in this world that can lead to as much trouble as unrighteous anger. And we've said things in anger. We've so badly wished that we could just cut our tongues off if it meant that we could take it all back. Angry words can leave wounds and scars regardless of whether or not we're forgiven by others. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, Sinful anger, the moment it has taken over, the devil enters in 
He will keep it going and insinuate thoughts and ideas and implant them. Indeed, the whole of life can be ruined just because of anger. Anger is always a cause of confusion, not only in the life of the individual, but in the lives of all those who are involved in the business of living with such an individual. Nothing, I maintain, so constantly gives the devil an opportunity as loss of control in anger. The devil's greatest opportunity to tempt us in sin is when we are nursing anger, when we are feeding it, when we are letting it fester and grow and cause rot inside of our hearts. So however it needs to happen, however I am able, I must get rid of it. Do not go to bed. Do not go to sleep with anger on your heart and your mind. Get rid of it. Erase it. Don't let the sun go down until it has been handled lest there's a lodging place in your heart wherein the devil finds a foothold. So think of this entire passage together now. We must always hate what God hates. Hate sin, always. Hate sin in the sinner, always. Never hate the sinner. We cannot, we must not condone or make excuses for sins. It should always be condemned because it offends our holy and righteous God. And sinners, people who are in Christ, they don't like that. In fact, so often we hear things like, well, I thought your Jesus was all about grace and love and mercy and compassion. What's all this talk about my sin? But you know, sinners have no right to speak that way. Listen, if you're not in Christ, I hope you have a profound sense of the reality that what you are hearing in terms of your separation from God and what you're feeling in the weight of your own anger and your own sinfulness, all of this is what you deserve and indeed infinitely more. And you know what? I do too. I deserve that too. So we should never go about trying to defend ourselves, but we should feel disgust and hatred and anger at the sin that is at war within us. We should have righteous anger, not just about your sin or about the world's sin, but about my sin. And every time it occurs within me, every time it rears its head in every form that it occurs. However, for the sinner, there's forgiveness and hope in Christ. There is the ability to rise up to forsake our sin that we hate, that we might find life and righteousness. Friend, if you're not in Christ, I hope you are feeling the weight of the truth of God's word pressing down on you. Your sin in your life, your anger is only unrighteous because if it was righteous, you would hate the very sin within you and repent of it. But you don't. And so you continue to live a life apart from Christ. So today is a day of salvation. Trust in Christ that you might have life that you might be angry at what God is angry at instead of constantly giving a foothold to the devil in your own life. Brothers and sisters in Christ, always, always make sure that you never put your head down on your pillow to rest with the spirit of bitterness or hatred or unwillingness to forgive in your heart, in your mind, in your soul. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil a foothold. Again, Lloyd-Jones comments, you may have a great struggle with yourself, but do not go to rest until you have settled it. 
You may have to argue it backwards and forwards. Go on, I say, until you have realized the love of God in Christ to you, until you have seen Christ bleeding and dying on the cross that you might be forgiven. Dwell on it until he has melted your heart and broken you down and made you sorry for the one who has offended you and until you can forgive freely. Then, but not until then, get into your bed and put your head down on the pillow and sleep the sleep of the just and the righteous and the holy because you have a right to do so. You will be doing it as the Son of God Himself did it. You will have acted in your life and domain as God Himself has acted with respect to you. If you're a Christian, you know how to deal with your anger. So let's be honest about what creeps into our hearts. Let's be diligent to be dealing with it in a way that pleases God and not our own flesh. What is your motive for anger? What are you defending? What makes you angry? And what are you going to do about it? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. Your word that sometimes shocks, sometimes challenges in ways that we don't expect. Sometimes that says things that are contrary to the ways that we may have been living. And as Christians, our desire is to be conformed to your word. And I pray for each and every one of us, Lord, that we would be angry at the things you're angry at. And that we would do so righteously. And that we would put away all unrighteous anger in our lives. And we recognize, Lord, in our fallen nature, in our own sin, the line is so thin. And to do what you're calling us to do here is so difficult, so contrary to our nature. As we live in the flesh and as we continue to have sin at war within us because we are not yet glorified. And so we pray, God, that our minds, as they are renewed by your word, that we would think upon what your word calls us to. Not rejecting all of the things before us that you are calling us to be angry about and just casting them aside and saying we don't care or we pay no mind to them. But that they would move us to prayer, they would move us to action, they would move us to speak words of truth. And yet, Father, we want to look at every situation with your eyes, see things as you see them, and not be angry because they thwart our own agenda, our own desires, our own longings, but because they are an offense to our holy and righteous God. And so, Father, we pray that you help us to put away all unrighteousness, to put on righteousness, And in this case, righteousness that manifests itself in godly, Christ-honoring anger. And for those who are not in Christ, we pray, God, that you would bring them to the end of themselves, that they would see the anger in their hearts as only unrighteous, and it is an anger toward you. May they repent and be restored and made new in Jesus Christ alone. It's in his name we pray. Amen.